Let's pray. Father, we trust you. Uh, We certainly know that there are ways in which we don't trust you. We certainly understand that our trust is not perfect. We do not have perfect trust in you. We want perfect trust in you. So in any way in which we fail or lack trust, fill it up so we would genuinely believe that you're going to do the things you promised to do. Like when Psalm 37, 5 says, commit your ways to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. We know you will act upon the teaching of your word. We know that Isaiah 55, 11 says your word will not return void. It will accomplish that, what you have sent it out to accomplish. We trust and believe that. So act, Lord. May your word sink deep into souls and minds. May doctrine be firmly established so that the practice of godly living and Christ-like following would be true and enjoyable and satisfying and sanctifying to our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today's text addresses apostasy. What is apostasy? Well, we'll get to that. But to be quite honest, we won't get to it today. We'll get to it a little bit, but we're ultimately going to get to it more thoroughly next week. Before we can even understand the nature of apostasy, we must understand the nature of eternal security so that apostasy makes biblical sense to us. Because as we talk about apostasy or what an apostate is, uh, the most natural question that comes out of the discussion about apostasy is the eternal security of the believer. Can a Christian lose their salvation? That's the, the most natural question that comes out of the discovery of apostasy. So I'll help you understand what apostasy is and what that means to eternal security. And we're mostly going to address eternal security today to establish like a firm foundation underneath that. So we'll read through verse 1, explain a portion of the verse, and then veer away into other texts to establish a baseline for eternal security so to better understand what apostasy really is. Meaning we're not even going to finish verse 1 today. Um, We'll start it. We'll leave it to establish other important truths that help us grasp verse 1, and then we'll come back to verse 1 next week and do more than verse 1, I think. We'll see. And then we'll see how Scripture defines apostasy and explore what it means to the importance of continued faithfulness to Christ. So, verse 1, Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul was, Paul was unique And that he was an apostle who did not walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, Paul was, we don't really know when Paul was born. Scripture doesn't give us any indication of when Paul was born. We have some verses that tell us at certain points in his ministry, like, you know, when he, I think in Acts 8, it says he's a young man. And so um, maybe that was six or seven 
maybe Acts 7, somewhere around there, says that Paul was a young man. That, that could just mean that he's not elderly. Uh, how young is young? We don't know. Uh, scholars have sort of concluded to the best of their knowledge, but without certainty, that Paul was probably born about 10 years after Jesus was born. And the reality is, Scripture also doesn't tell us exactly when Jesus was born. We have way more clues about when Jesus was born, though. So Jesus was probably born around 4 BC. Paul was probably born around 5 AD. So it was about a 10-year gap. And all of that kind of you know, hangs in limbo. We don't really know with absolute certainty. And to be quite honest, it's not that important, but it's helpful. It's nice to know, you know, that when Jesus enters ministry at 30 years old, Paul is in his early 20s. And so during Jesus's earthly ministry, Paul's in his early 20s becoming a, developing this rising star status in, as a Pharisee, which really starts to take off after Christ. And so when Jesus is on earth, when Jesus dies on the cross, Paul is still a Pharisee and does not follow Jesus. He would have been in the group of people who hated Jesus and wanted to see him die. If Paul in his early 20s even understood that to whatever extent, we don't really know. But the point is that Paul is unique from the other apostles because all the other apostles did what? They walked with Jesus. They walked on earth with with him in person, face to face. They suffered at the hands of the Pharisees while Jesus was on earth and at the hands of the people and the high priest and the council and the Romans and whoever else, everybody other than believers hated Jesus and hated hated his followers and sought to persecute them. And Paul was one of the persecutors. So during Jesus's earthly ministry, Paul's not following Christ. It's not until afterwards in Acts 9 when Paul meets Christ face-to-face in the road to Damascus that Jesus shows up in Paul's life and regenerates his heart and saves him. And then you've got this apostle who now becomes a believer, except he didn't walk with Jesus. He didn't live on earth for three years with the other apostles learning from Christ himself. So how does Paul know what he knows? Did all the other apostles tell him? Well, there's certainly some things that the apostles would talk about with Paul about after Paul got saved. But Paul is unique in that he received truth from Jesus in direct revelations of Jesus after Jesus' ascension to heaven. So after Christ dies, resurrects, 40 days on earth, and ascends to heaven, six more times he's going to show up in Paul's life in a face-to-face slash vision style direct revelation and teach Paul the gospel. Paul did not get the gospel from a man. He didn't get it from Peter. He didn't get it from Matthew. He didn't get it from Luke. He didn't get it from Barnabas or Silas or James. He got it from Jesus. Galatians chapter 1 says, I did not receive this gospel from man, but from the Lord himself and a revelation of Jesus. So that happens six times to Paul. So Paul gets everything he needs to know directly from the Lord himself. Now that's important because Paul says here that The Spirit expressly says, meaning Paul is getting this teaching. It's not some Old Testament teaching. It's not some New Testament teaching of the Gospels. It's not James told me this or Peter told me this. He's saying the Lord himself has told me expressly, meaning explicitly or clearly. And so what Paul is doing is he's validating and verifying an irrefutable truth. That this is what God himself says directly to me, and this is an absolute take-it-home, put-it-in-the-bank kind of truth. That in later times, some people will depart to a depart from the faith. 
So what the Spirit teaches Paul is that something is going to happen in later times. That's the words he uses, in later times. Now, we tend to think of like the term later times or latter times or whatever as an end times prediction. This isn't an end times. That's not what this means. He's referring to any time after his writing this. So he's saying throughout the continuation of the church, from the time that Paul wrote this to the modern church today, this is a reality in the church. There will be those who leave, who depart from the faith. So this is very applicable to the modern church because I would say that all of us, or many of us at least, have probably seen this a few times in your life, especially if you've been around the church for years. You've seen or heard of people who claim to follow Jesus and then no longer do. And those people we would identify as apostates. So what is apostasy? Well, the dictionary defines it as abandoning your religious belief. But scripture doesn't just define it for us. It describes the nature of apostasy. And we're not going to get into the depth of the nature of apostasy today. We will next week. But again, as I, as I said earlier, we have to explore something else that creates like a foundation under, underneath this, this teaching of apostasy. You don't pick a, a, a plot of land and then just start building walls on loose dirt and put up your house and doors and windows because in about a year, two, three, four, five, especially 10 years from then, that dirt is going to move, that house is going to move, and your house is going to crumble. And like Jesus talks about, building your house on sand, when the storm comes, it's going to wash your house away. So what do you need to build your house on? The rock. And he's talking about building your life on Christ, but it's still the same principle of building doctrine upon solid foundations And some doctrines require a foundation of another doctrine to stabilize it. So the teaching of apostasy would be the house. And the firm foundation underneath the house would be the teaching on eternal security. So we have to explore that before we start building the house. Can't build the house and then go back and try to rebuild the foundation underneath it. It's not going to work as well. So today we'll explore that. But when we look at apostasy, Paul describes apostasy in verse 1 doesn't explore it very deeply, a little bit, in verses 2 and 3, but ultimately we find the, the, the most robust teaching on apostasy, probably in Hebrews 6 and in a few other places. Uh, Jesus' parable of the sowers, uh, parable of the sower, is another great teaching on apostasy, and we'll explore those next week. But for now, Paul gives us an indication of what apostasy is. He says in verse 1, In later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So this departure from the faith is, the, is apostasy. And the one who departs from the faith is an apostate. So now you got terms and definitions down a little bit. We need to understand something. Some preachers teach that you can lose your salvation. We do not teach that here. It is not taught in scripture. I'm going to show you that today. And when some preachers teach that you can lose your salvation, one of the strongest arguments they make for losing your salvation is to define apostasy as becoming a believer, getting saved, and then losing your salvation. So some people define apostasy as being saved and then being unsaved. 
The Bible defines apostasy as never having been saved and then leaving the faith. So the question would naturally be, then why do we call it leaving the faith if they were never in the faith? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Our English translations of the Bible use words like Paul's here where he says, depart from the faith. It makes it sound like I was in the faith and then I left the faith, leading us to believe that they were saved and then they denounced Christ and became unsaved. So let me first verify for you with, with biblical evidence. We're going to spend the rest of the time doing this. Verify for you with biblical evidence that it is impossible to lose your faith if it is genuine. Which ultimately, really only God knows. You could say, well, only God and that person know, but that's not necessarily true. Because an apostate thinks they're saved, and they would tell you, I know I'm saved, and then they're not. So we need to explore that, because that's a real serious question, because that's in the Bible, and it can, without understanding it properly, it can cause a genuine believer to question their faith. So if we talk about apostasy, the believers can go, does that mean I'm, maybe I'm not saved? And the Bible does, we, we look at 1 John, we just walked through 1 John on Wednesday night, and what do we get over and over? Confidence, 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 confidence. We want, John says over and over in his gospel and in his letters, I want you to know that you're saved. So God wants us to have confidence in our salvation, confidence in the gospel and the power of God to save us and to keep us safe. He wants that assurance we are supposed to have assurance. And then if you read about apostasy and you go, wait a minute, I can lose my salvation? No, that's not what it means. So we need to unravel that and make it make sense. But first we have to discover um, eternal security. So the doctrine that teaches us that we cannot lose our salvation is called eternal security or perseverance of the saints. Now, personally, I like the words perseverance of the saints because it conveys the means by which our eternity is secured, which is our continued perseverance in the faith by the power and cause of the Holy Spirit through the word of God and prayer in relationship to the church body as one united in Christ, being sanctified into righteousness. That is how our eternity is secured. By the power and the work of God to create all of these means of keeping us in the faith. And then to do, as he says in Ephesians 2.10, who he, he created works of righteousness before the foundations of the earth. He created your pathway of righteousness. And, and we are to walk in that pathway. And that pathway includes your relationship to the church and your, and your time in the word and prayer and your growth and sanctification and so on and so forth. And all this stuff is involved in your spiritual growth. And it's the means by which God causes the saints to persevere, which is why I like the phrase perseverance of the saints. Now, Paul has hinted at this idea of continued faithfulness several times in chapter 3. And continuing in obedience is the truest marker of one whose salvation is genuine, which will only be validated by the continuation in the faith lasting the entirety of your lifetime. 
Now, let's discover eternal security. Let's discover perseverance of the saints. And so I've taught this before here, but I understand the church changes a lot. There's a lot of people come and go. It's you know, kind of a revolving door sometimes. And there's a lot of newer people who haven't heard me teach this, so I'm going to teach this again. And I want you to think about this with me logically, just rationally. If there was a way for you to lose your salvation, what would those ways be? There's really only three ways. There's only three possibilities if you could lose your salvation. Possibility number one would be that God kicks you out. That God's just had enough of you. Just doesn't want you anymore. Had you for a while, it was good. He's like a bad boyfriend. You know, takes what he wants from you and then he's like... Take a hike, man. I'm just sick of you. Okay, that's option number one. God takes your salvation away or he kicks you out of eternity. Option number two, you choose to leave. You're like, I don't want this anymore. I discovered new things. I don't think it's true anymore. I was saved, but I don't want to be saved anymore. I'm going to leave. Option number three, Satan slash the world, Satan or the world steals you away. That you're saved and then the pleasures of the world come and grab you and take you to the world and you lose your salvation. Or Satan comes and steals you away and you lose your salvation. Um, Those are the only possibilities. There's no other possibility if you could lose your salvation. Those would be the only possible ways. God kicks you out. You choose to leave. Someone steals you away. The apostate who abandons the faith will always say that they personally chose to leave for whatever reason. I've never heard an apostate say that, you know, Satan stole me away and I really didn't want to be stolen because I really love Jesus. But then Satan came and took me and I wanted to go back in and he, but, but he wouldn't let me love Jesus even though I really want to, but Satan just wouldn't let me. So I guess I'm stuck not being saved. No one talks like that. and No one's ever said that. Apostates don't say that. And they certainly don't say, oh, I really wanted to stay saved, but God kicked me out. And I was like, God, I want to be saved. And he's like, no. Like, no one says that. No one who leaves the faith ever says, well, Satan took me even though I really want to be there. Or God kicked me out even though I really want to be there. What do they say? They always say it was their decision. They chose to leave. So is the apostate saying they realized the gospel was a lie or God of the Bible is false or he's this or he's that. And therefore, in their experiential wisdom, they determine that Christianity is false. You know, I see the way Christians live and it's just not like the Bible says they should live. So Christianity is fake and I'm not I'm just not going to do it anymore. Well, if anyone's depending on Christians who are imperfect to be the standard for their own salvation, then no one will be saved. So apostates always, always would say that it's their decision to leave for whatever reason, but it's their decision. However, the two other possibilities that either God could kick kick us out or Satan steals away, those still have to be resolved. So we have to address those three possibilities in scripture. We have to discover, does scripture give us an answer for, can God kick me out? Can I choose to leave? And can Satan or the world steal me away? Are any of those a possibility and does scripture talk about them? Well, here is the wisdom of Jesus, our God. He answers all three of these possibilities in the gospel of John. Now there's way more scripture 
to eternal security than we're going to cover today. Okay? A lot more. But we're just going to address, address Jesus' words in the Gospel of John and see him answer these three questions. So let's address these three only possible ways of losing your salvation if it were possible to lose your salvation, which I'm arguing is not possible. So, number one, God kicks you out of salvation. Jesus answers this in John 6, 37. He says, all that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. Pretty self-explanatory. I could just move on to number two. But that's not what I'm like. So, the words, all that the Father gives me, when Jesus says that, clearly refers to people. Because Jesus goes on to explain that all that the Father gives him, will, he will give eternal life to. And he doesn't give eternal life to objects or things. He gives eternal life to people. So it's people that the Father gives him. And Jesus says that when the Father, all, that the, all the people that the Father gives to Christ, Jesus will, quote, verse 37, never cast out. Now the Greek word for never is alme which is a double negative. Now, in English, a double negative equals what? A positive, right? And if you have kids, you probably hear about it all the time, right? They try to trick you with their double negatives, right? Because even children understand that a double negative equals a positive. And when they discover it, they feel like they, feel like they found gold and they're trying to trick you all the time with their double negatives. But the reality is in Greek, a double negative does not equal a positive. A double negative in Greek is used for emphasis. So a more genuine rendering of this Greek phrase would be, all that the Father gives me, I will never, no, not ever cast out. Jesus is emphasizing the impossibility of a genuine believer being kicked out of eternity. So that answers that concern that you can, that that God would kick you out. That's not a possibility. If the Father has given you life in Christ, Christ will not remove you. God will never remove a believer from their salvation. God will never unjustify one whom he has justified. Because if his justification were not eternally sealed, then that would mean that God's ability to justify is not even trustworthy. Making him weak and incapable of securing the very thing he says he produces. And that would logically force us to believe that there is a force outside of God that is greater than him that can undo his justification or there's a force greater than him, greater than him, we'll call it your will or something else that he can't stop from undoing his justification. So it shrinks God into a God who is not the God described in scripture. Meaning if you could lose your salvation, the very nature of God crumbles and falls apart. So that answers God kicking you out of eternity. That's not a possibility. Jesus just told us, no, not ever. I will never, no, not ever cast you out. Number two, you choose to leave. You're like, I'm done with this. I've heard enough about Christianity. I'm sick of Jesus. I'm sick of the church. Oh, the church is just this or that. They just ask for money and make me want to do things and I have to go here and do that. And it's just so much hard work. And then no one ever honestly says, you know, I just... 
don't want to be held accountable for my sin. No one says that because that's the truth of why people walk away or why people don't believe. They don't want to be held accountable for their sin because if they're held accountable for their sin, they have to change. And change is hard and people resist change because it's hard and it will cost you something. You know you're going to have to sacrifice and you don't want to sacrifice because you want your life the way you want it. You don't want someone else telling you how to live your life. And then if, 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 if I give my life to Christ and God tells me how to live my life, and not only does God tell me how to live my life, but I have to go to church and there's going to be people who tell me how to live my life. And I'm going to have a pastor who tells me how to live my life. And then I don't have control over my life. And God's like, exactly. Exactly. You don't get control over your life. I get control over your life is what he's telling us. Amen. And so we're afraid to commit to Christ. People are afraid to commit to Christ. And, and they have to justify it because they don't want to say, I don't want to be held accountable to, to God. So they justify it with, well, it's because Christians are just so phony. They're hypocrites. Like, well, of course we are. We claim, perf- we claim a, a perfect Christ that we can't even attempt to imitate. We try and fail at it miserably, regularly. Of course we look like hypocrites. And it's like, that's the whole reason we have a church. It's for hypocrites. It should, we should put a sign on the front that says, hypocrites only. Like, <laughs> I mean, when I first came here, I looked at the website. So the website was built before, you know, I got here. And it said, no perfect people allowed. And I was like, that's totally true. No perfect people should be allowed here. Because that's impossible. No one is perfect. That's the point. I get it. But I had it taken down because I, was un- I thought about it. And I thought, you know, there are going to be people who think they're perfect and then won't come because we just told them they can't. And I was like, let's just get rid of that statement. I don't like it. Let's just, let's just be the church, right? And so these apostates have to justify leaving Christ and it is never their own fault. It's never their fault. It can't be. Because to, for it to be your fault, you'd have to be humble and repentant and understand and recognize your own sin. And you can't if you're an apostate. And not only can you not do it as an apostate, but you'll never be able to do it again, according to Hebrews 6. And we'll talk about that next week. But this idea of you choosing to, lo- to, to leave your salvation, for you to leave Christ, for you to give up salvation and become an unbeliever. And for whatever reason, Jesus answers this in the following verses in John 6. So we just looked at John 6, 37. Now we look at 38 through 40. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father's will for the Son, Jesus starts with the previous verse, verse 37, where the Father gives to the Son people whom he will never, no, not ever, cast out. And these people whom he will never kick out, he also, verse 39, will lose nothing of all that he has given me. So these very people that the Father gives to him, Jesus will, not only will he not cast them out, he will not lose them.
just funny because we were just talking, I think it was at Life Group the other day, we were talking about Jesus' parents when Jesus was 12 and they left uh, Jerusalem and Mary's like, where's Jesus? <laughs> and we were exploring all the possible Converse, what the conversation must have been like between Joseph and Mary. You know, oh, it's your fault. You were supposed to watch him. I don't know where he is. And they can't find Jesus at 12 years old, so they're worried. And they find him in the synagogue teaching people and blowing the minds of adult men in the synagogue as a 12-year-old. They were amazed at him. But what you'll notice there is they lost Jesus. Did Jesus get lost? Was Jesus lost? No, Jesus was exactly where he said he was supposed to be. I was in my father's house where I belong. He wasn't lost, but they lost him. So Jesus chose to leave his parents and his parents lost him. So even if the person chooses to leave, if Jesus says, you choose to leave me, I will not lose you, then you don't have the choice to leave because he cannot lose you. Meaning if you choose to leave Christ, well, you can't because he cannot lose you. So if you actually do leave Christ and abandon your faith, that means you never had it. Because if you did, you would not have lost it and he would not have lost you. Additionally, Jesus goes on to say in verses 39 through 40, that those whom the Father gives him, those whom he will never cast out, and those whom he will never lose, he will give them eternal life. He says that in verse 40. And he will, verse 39 and verse 40, raise them up on the last day. If eternal life is true, then it's eternal Right? It can't end. So Jesus makes a promise here. If the Father gives you, gives me you, and I get you, I'll never cast you out, and I can't lose you, and I'm going to make a promise. I cannot, so I promise not to kick you out, and I promise not to lose you, and I promise I will raise you up in the last day, and I promise you will have eternal life. Those are promises, four promises. Never kick you out, never lose you, raise you up on the last day, and you will have eternal life. Those are promises that Jesus will fulfill. So if eternal life is true, then it cannot end or it wouldn't be eternal, nor would it be life. Eternal life is secured in the believer by the Holy Spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, he says, In him you also, that's in Christ, in Christ you also When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, you've got two words there, sealed and guarantee. The word sealed in Greek means branded, like branding cattle. It cannot be undone. And the word guarantee in Greek means down payment, which is a guarantee to fulfill all promises related to that purchase. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. You're the item that is purchased. 
And you're purchased by the blood and the death of Jesus Christ. And God guarantees that his purchase of our life is eternal. And he will finish what he started by completing the payment with eternal life. And he guarantees it by sealing you with the Spirit. And God fulfills all of his promises. According to Joshua 21.45 and Galatians 3 and many other verses. So he guarantees our eternal security by sealing us or branding us with the Holy Spirit, making eternal life an everlasting promise that cannot be undone either by you choosing to leave or him kicking you out. And finally, number three, what if Satan can steal you away or the world can steal you away, the pleasures of the world steal you away? Well, you would experience that as your decision. To you, it would feel like you made the decision. If Satan would deceive you into thinking that you don't need Jesus and you're going to leave, that wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize like, oh, hey, Satan, oh, you want me to go with you? Sure, I'll just leave Jesus and follow you. Like, it's not that obvious. And so instead, what he does is he manipulates and deceives, and that person wouldn't say, Satan stole me away, or the world stole me away. They would say, I chose to leave. So the real question is, is there something underneath that person's perception where Satan or the world can manipulate them and take them away from Christ? The answer ultimately is no. We'll see this come up again when we look at, into the parable, Jesus' parable of the sower next week and we, as we unveil apostasy. But it reveals that the one who was stolen away from the truth was never actually a part of the truth. And But here in John... Jesus explicitly clarifies this in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. And Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So notice again that Jesus says he gives us eternal life, but this time he clarifies even further that they will never perish. So there's an addition to the promise that he gave us in John 6. In John 6, he says, I will raise you up and you will have eternal life. Those are promises. And now he adds that promise and you will never perish. It's the same promise. All three of those promises mean the same thing. Eternal life begins and never ends. And if your eternal life starts, meaning you get saved and you're given eternal life, and then you choose or somehow leave salvation and you, you no longer have eternal life, then that means you never had eternal life because if you did, it would be eternal. So the fact that it ends implies that it was never there because it's eternal. It's not temporary life, it's eternal life. So it wouldn't even make sense that Jesus would say these kinds of things assuming that someone could choose to be unsaved. <clears throat> Ultimately, it would make Jesus a liar. That he would make these promises for the people he saves and then not keep his promise. And if Jesus can't keep his promise, then he's not who he says he is. And we should all just die in pity. But to answer the concern that Jesus, or I'm sorry, Satan, to answer the concern that Satan or the world can steal us away from Christ, Jesus says, and this is really important, 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. It is very difficult for me to teach this doctrine of eternal security without diving head first into the absolute sovereignty of God in all areas of life. But that would be a long, long adventure. Um, But that reality of God's absolute sovereignty, particularly his sovereignty in election, is laced all throughout this doctrine of eternal security. And Jesus emphasizes his own sovereignty in this phrase that there is no one who is strong enough to wrestle you away from Christ, including Satan in the world. And if that were not enough evidence, which it is, but if it were not, Jesus goes on to clarify his own deity by equating himself with the Father and saying that they are one. Why does he say they are one? Because he says no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he just said no one's able to snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is saying if you can snatch them out of my hand, then you can snatch them out of the Father's hand because it's the same hand. And if you can snatch them out of the Father's hand, you can snatch them out of my hand. But since you can't snatch them out of my hands, you can't snatch them out of the Father's hands. And if you can snatch them out of my hands, you'd have to be stronger than the Father to take them away from him. And Jesus just said in verse 39, the Father is greater than all. No one is greater than God and can take from him that which he says, you can't take from me. So, if it were possible... To lose your salvation, it would have to be in one of these three ways. God kicks you out, you choose to leave, or Satan or the world or something steals you away. Yet Jesus answers all three of these concerns in John's gospel and reveals that when God saves, it is impossible to undo. And since an apostate leaves the faith, we can therefore conclude that an apostate was never saved. And we'll explore that next week because we're going to look at Scripture That if you read it at surface level, particularly Hebrews 6, in fact, I would recommend that before next Sunday you read Hebrews 6, 1 through like 9, okay? Read Hebrews 6, like 1 through 9, maybe even like 5, the end of 5 through 6, 9. Don't do it right now. I hear Bible pages turning. We'll get to that next, but just read ahead. And if you read it at surface level, it looks like that person got saved and then lost their salvation. And then there's some really tough phrases in there that are like, whoa, churches don't say that kind of stuff. Like that person can never be saved again. What does that mean? So we have to explore that. But that can't even make sense if we don't first have this foundation under our feet that it is impossible to lose your salvation. Because then if, if that's not true, then we can't make sense of apostasy. Now, there are more doctrinal implications of this truth, and uh, as, will, as well as some uh, practical implications for your daily Christian living. But I want to go back to John 6 really quick with you and see how Jesus ties these things together. So, part of, so if, if eternal security is the foundation upon which we build the house, of, and the house is the doctrine of apostasy, and the foundation is... Uh, eternal security, then the uh, mixture of cement that makes the foundation includes all the doctrines of God's sovereignty. And one of those elements in the mixture of the foundational cement is the doctrine of election, which is that God chooses whom he will save before the foundations of the world and that 
it is up to God's will, not man's will, which he says in Romans chapter 9 and very explicitly, but in many other places as well. And so what Jesus does in John 6 is awesome because what Jesus is really doing, to go along with the analogy, is in John 6, we just saw Jesus in John 6 tell us about the foundation of eternal security, right? That like he explained that you can't leave, you can't be lost, He's going to make this promise. Your your eternity is secured. So he teaches that. But then he goes on to talk about God's sovereignty and election. It's almost as if Jesus in John 6 were watching him like stir the cement. He's like, I'm going to pour some of this in here now. Here's a little bit of eternal security. I'll mix that in. Oh, here's some of God's sovereignty in your election. Mix that in. And I'm going to make a a firm, uh, some cement to build a firm foundation. And, and we get to see him lace these ideas together because what we discover is that without election, eternal security doesn't make sense. And if eternal security is going to make sense, there has to be election. It doesn't work any other way. So Jesus states that the Father has given people to Jesus, and he says that he will never cast them out and he will never lose them. And then he goes on to say twice in the same chapter a very important truth that is foundational to that eternal security, um, that part of that mixture of the foundation of, of eternal security. In John 6, 44, Jesus says, this is right after he just, the text we just covered in John 6, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And Jesus is teaching us the sovereignty of God in election that Paul teaches us, teaches us about in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Now, I don't think that John 6 is the strongest argument for election, but it's part of the argument for election. I think there are many other texts that are stronger, but when you add them, put them together, they create that adhesive material, which is a firm foundation of doctrine. And he says in Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So he chose us, and he chose us to be in Christ, and he did this before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. And then because he loves us, he predestined us for adoption through Christ. And this was all according to human will? No, the purpose of his will. That is the same principle that Jesus is teaching in John 6, 44, that God's sovereignty in our eternal security cannot be true if God is not also sovereign over the election of the saints. If God were to elect and then, were to, and then we were to lose our salvation, then his election is meaningless. Not only is that illogical, but it would, it's also not taught in Scripture. You're not going to find that in the Bible teaching us that. So the security of our salvation requires a sovereign God who also elects us to be justified by his grace through faith in Christ. And you can see Jesus tie these truths together later in John 6, verses 63 through 65, where he's going to repeat what he just said in verse 44. And he says, it is the spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is of no avail. So there you see this truth that is repeated many times in scripture. This idea that your flesh has no participation in the regeneration of your heart to believe in Jesus Christ. Your experience in getting saved will feel like your flesh is involved. Because you're going to hear the gospel and you're going to believe the gospel. And you're going to say with your mouth and believe in your heart and think with your mind. I believe and accept this. And you say, I confess Jesus as my savior. So your experience will be fleshly. Because your body will be participating, but your body can't participate until the spirit himself has already regenerated your heart. That's from 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It is impossible to say Jesus is Lord except in the spirit. So the spirit has to do the work of regeneration. And in doing so, he applies the gift of faith to you. And with that gift of faith, you choose to believe in Christ. So your fleshly experience is actually the, the product of... Of the salvation you just received, which is God acting out the very thing that he promised or decided before the foundation of the world, which is that in love he would predestine you. And then there's a moment in your life where what we call effectual salvation, where your salvation takes effect and you experience it. That is God's sovereignty at work in your salvation. And in addition to that, when we talk about the spirit giving life and the flesh is of no avail at all, this isn't the only place we see this. If you look at uh, John chapter 1, we see this. John says, uh, but to all who did, this is John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who, so these are children of God who are born and believe in Christ. They've received Christ, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The flesh is of no avail. It's the Spirit who gives life. And then verse 65, John 6, 65, Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's his point. This is why I said earlier that you can't come to the Father unless the Father draws you or the Father grants it because your flesh can't come unless the Spirit creates life, which means the Father has to do the work first, meaning you have to be elect. Now you can say, well, that's unfair. I'm not going to address that question because that is a whole different rabbit hole. But... I've taught on that before, and if you really want to know more about that, you're going to have to come to some Bible studies, because <laughs> we're only going to address it at the pulpit when the text we're in demands that it be addressed. So um, all of this teaching on God's sovereignty in election is the basis for why Jesus teaches us about eternal security. If the, if the Father, as Jesus says in John 10, is greater than all, and we cannot leave, and he will not kick us out, and no one can snatch us from his hand, then he is sovereign over our eternal security, which is the only logical and biblical conclusion to make if what Jesus teaches us in John 6, 44 and 63 through 65 is true. That no one can come to him on their own. They need the spirit to produce life, which is done only to those whom the father grants or draws according to his sovereign purpose and will. And that election is the foundation underneath our eternal security. If God is going to be the only one who gives us eternal life, then he is the only one who can maintain our eternal life. And we see this in Jude chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude 1, he says we are kept in Christ. And then at the end of Jude, uh, verse 24, he says Jesus keeps us from stumbling, keeps us from apostasy. 
He says, to him, that's Christ, who is able to keep us from stumbling. It's him. If it's not him, then who gets the glory? You do. And if you get the glory, then God's a phony. And he, because if God is who he says he is, he should get all the glory. He even says in his word, I'll give my glory to no one else. It's his. All of it. He deserves it. Every last ounce, he deserves it all. And the only reason you get to experience any of his glory is because he picks you by his grace. And so, for you to be the one who is causing any of this would give you a a smidgen of opportunity to boast about your participation. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 says that we cannot boast in our salvation. This This is a gift from God. Of, his, of grace and faith, so that no one may boast. Why, why so that no one may boast? So that God gets all the glory. God does all the work. And he doesn't just do all the work in saving you. He does all the work in maintaining you and securing your eternal life. He has to. Because the moment it's on you and not on him, you will fail. Because Jesus just told us your flesh is of no avail. Your flesh will not avail over sin. Your flesh will fail in the face of sin. Your flesh will not be victorious over sin. And the moment the sovereignty of God is released from you for a second, you will die. He has to be sovereign, not only over your election, but through your eternal security. And then what we have to discover through more doctrinal discovery is what are the means that God uses to maintain that eternal security? Because there's a, that, that really is the ultimate question when we think about the practical implications of what that means. So I can just do whatever I want, I guess, and I'm just saved forever. Well, not really. So what does this mean practically for us? Well, some believers errantly conclude that this means you can just go on sinning all you want and cannot lose your salvation. So, heck, why not, man? Let's just, you know, do whatever we want. But that just doesn't line up with any biblical teaching. And Paul says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 15, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. So the result of our election is our eternal security. And you go, and you can go, you can go one of two ways with that eternal security. You can use it to honor God with obedience, or you can use it to abuse God's grace in disobedience. One leads to eternal life, the other leads to death. So instead of considering our eternal security as a free pass to sin, those who are truly saved will consider that the freedom of this eternal life is our newfound freedom from sin. Freedom from the flesh. Freedom from the slavery to sin. Our eternal security is not freedom to sin. Our eternal security is freedom from sin. 
Before we were slaves to sin. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. We were slaves to sin. Don't return to the yoke of slavery. You were a slave to sin. You've been free from the slavery to sin. And now you are, Romans 6, a slave to righteousness. A slave to your new master Christ. That's who we're a slave to. And I'm telling you, biblical slavery to Christ is actually the greatest experience of freedom you could possibly have. You are unlike any other person in the world. They have to sin. Now, I'm not being mean to those people because those are the very people who need Jesus and we should be loving them and sharing the gospel with them and going and getting them and dying. Like Spurgeon says, if they're going to go to hell, they they better leap over my Body as I reach out to grab their ankles before they fall into hell. That's the Spurgeon's picture of evangelism, the heart of evangelism in the church, that we should be sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. Paul even said about the Jews, I would give up my own salvation if I could for my brothers and sisters, my Jewish brothers and sisters. That's how desperate Paul is to see people get saved. But those people who are not saved can only sin. Even if they do a good deed, even if they help an old lady across the street or they shovel a neighbor's driveway or they, you know, do some charity work or they are totally sacrificial, morally wonderful people. It does not proceed from faith in Christ. And Romans 14, 23 says that which does not proceed from faith is sin. They can only sin. And they have committed the, at this point in their life, committed the only unforgivable sin, which is to reject Christ. Because to reject Christ is apostasy. And to reject Christ is unforgivable. Because you can't be saved if you reject Christ. I tell you that to show you how unimaginably blessed you are. That God would choose you to no longer be that slave to that one and only thing you can do, which is sin. And now, being slaves to righteousness and slaves to Christ, we are free. Freedom from the bondage of sin and free to live our life in the righteousness of Christ. And let me tell you why slavery to righteousness is actually the greatest freedom. Because righteousness feels good. It feels great. Do not tell me that when you do a good thing, it doesn't feel good. If you say that it doesn't feel good to do good things, you are lying to yourself. There are non-Christians who even recognize when they do morally bad things that they feel bad about them. We feel terrible when we do bad things, and we feel great when we do good things. In fact, we we feel so great about doing good things, sometimes we boast about it, which is a bad thing. So... (laughs) Our good things even lead us into bad things sometimes, but... We, I mean, think about it. If you help somebody who really needs help, doesn't that feel great? It's supposed to. It's called joy. And it's a promise. We're promised joy, biblically, for following Christ. We're promised joy and righteousness. It's suppo- joy should be the only and final greatest destination for the believer who understands the sovereignty of God in election and the sovereignty of God in our eternal security. Is The whole point of it is to produce in you joy in Jesus Christ, to be satisfied in Him. Psalm 1611 
love Psalm 1611. It might be my favorite Psalm. It might be my favorite verse in the Bible. Didn't I talk last week about not having favorites? Okay. In your presence, there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the aim of the Christian life. To be where Jesus is. And where is Jesus? At the right hand of God the Father. And what did he just tell us in Psalm 1611? Is that the right hand of God the Father pleasures forevermore and a joy that you cannot even comprehend. That is the point of the Christian life. That is what we pursue is satisfaction and joy. And it comes when you do righteousness, which you can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit, of a sovereign God who has orchestrated your salvation and your eternal security and maintains your eternal security through the sanctifying work of his spirit. And as he does that, you do more and more and more righteousness. And it feels good and it feels great. And it doesn't, it doesn't become a selfish, I'm a really good person. It becomes, I am worthless without the spirit of God producing Christ-likeness out of me. And it feels so good to be used by God and, and for God to prove, prove that he loves me. And he proves that he loves us because he says in Romans 8 that he pours his love, or Romans 5 or one of them, somewhere in Romans, that he pours his love into us by the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit pours out of us and does work. And when we're doing the work that the Spirit is pouring out of us, we are experiencing what? God's love. It feels good to do good because that for you is an experience that is meant to do something that you're feeling, which is God really loves me. And he's proving it because the Spirit is doing good things out of me. And if, the, if I didn't have the Spirit, I wouldn't be doing these good things. But since I am, it's proof and evidence to me that the Spirit is at work. And if that means I have the Holy Spirit. And if I have the Holy Spirit, that means God poured the Spirit into me. And if God poured the Spirit into me, that means God loves me. Amen. And if God loves me, I'm the happiest person in the world. Joy. Joy, the whole point is joy and all this. I mean, the whole point is eternal security and election stuff. I know that there's a doctrinal stuff to explore. There's a lot of scripture to understand. And trust me, we haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg on these doctrines. But the, the, the goal is to help us understand and see that God in his sovereignty has orchestrated reality for Christians to live in the freedom. It's slavery to righteousness, righteousness, but it's freedom from sin. So now we get to express Christ's likeness in our behavior and enjoy God forever. So no, you don't get to go sin with your newfound freedom. It's not freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. Which is why I like the title, Perseverance of the Saints, for this doctrine. Because true believers will persevere to the end by the power of the Holy Spirit to produce obedience in their sanctification. Which is exactly the opposite of those whom Paul is referring to in 1 Timothy 4.1. So with that foundation of the perseverance of the saints under our feet, next week we will have a solid understanding upon which we can stand to help us grasp the truth of apostasy let's pray lord we love you we thank you and we know you love us because you're doing work we see the work we see the evidence let that evidence and that work that you produce in us the righteousness that you are working in us first of all help us recognize it's not us it's you and then once we recognize that it's you help us to find joy in it let us be satisfied in it and let us pursue it even more then because who doesn't want more joy so, so make us pursue righteousness so that we would be satisfied in you.
and keep us from sin. Like Paul says in Galatians 5.1, if we've been freed from that yoke of slavery to sin, then why would we return to it? Why would we go back to the grave and dig it up? There's nothing there for us. That's not who we are. You've made us something new, a new creation in Christ. So as you teach us these doctrines, let them not just be head knowledge and information that we can you know, swing around and wield like weapons to teach people how much we know or defeat others in arguments. But let it be truth that brings us joy in Christ. Truth that finds real application to the way we live our Christian life. A way that honors you, glorifies you, and satisfies our hearts in Christ. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.